So good evening, LCM. Today's date is December 11th, 2019, and the title to tonight's message is A Giant Problem. A Giant Problem. I want our church family has been thoroughly encouraged over the past few weeks. Amen? With messages such as, your bitter, sweet life now. Daily disciplines. Moving mountains. These words have been timely encouragements. Timely encouragements for us all in this season of fighting sickness. Overcoming trials of various kinds. And winning in the name of Jesus. Last Sunday's message was particularly on point. And that Pastor Wade worked to strengthen us with a heavenly perspective. One that correctly sees our trials and troubles as the molehills they are, not the mountains of impossibility that our fears make them out to be. Were y'all blessed by that message? Yeah. Still chewing on it today. In fact, he stressed that we possess the ability to be victorious if we have the faith as small as a mustard seed. And when you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you're then empowered to speak to that mountain and say, be cast into the sea. Have y'all been throwing some mountains into the sea this past week? As we should. Fear is an enemy of faith. In fact, it's a giant enemy. It's a giant problem. Because as we were relating to Pastor Wade's message, Moving Mountains... It's that fear that blinds us from seeing what faith is trying to lead us to. Fear always causes your vision to be emptied of faith. And we must drive out fear in order to inherit the promises that God has given us. Do you all want to inherit the promises that God has given you? Well, turn with me to Genesis 15. And we're going to learn more about correcting our vision and mountain-moving faith being at work within us. We'll start in verse 1. <laughs> say there when you're there. After this, everyone say after this. Which lets us know there was quite a few things that happened before this statement was said, right? We're jumping into the life of Abram before he becomes Abraham. And there were a variety of trials and difficulties that he went through. And now after those trials and difficulties, those giant problems, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Not just a dream, not a passing thought or fleeting emotion, in a vision, the word of the Lord came to him. And look at the first thing that the Lord speaks to Abram after this. Do not be afraid. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, do not be afraid. afraid. In this particular case, he says, do not be afraid, Abram. Just to clear it up and make sure that Abram knows that the Lord is speaking to him in a vision. He says, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, "Uh oh, this sentence starts off with a but. Usually when you see this word, it's not going to be a a pleasant experience afterwards. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, 
What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham is stating that he has a giant problem. He goes on to say, and Abram said, you have given me no children. That's a giant problem in a variety of ways. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Look at the beginning of this verse when it says, O sovereign Lord. This is like Abraham looking up and saying, I know you just said that you're my shield. I know you just said you're my, my very great reward. You're my protector. But, I just want to start out by giving you some props. A little bit of flattery here. But, I want to let you know that I don't think you figured this thing all the way out. There's something that I see as an impossibility. A giant problem of how your promises are going to be fulfilled to me. In fact, he's stating what he is lacking. Oh, This ought to be a direct reflection of our prayer life sometimes. We begin our prayer with the honor and respect of the Lord's due. Jesus, mighty King, Lord of the earth, heavenly Father, on and on and on the monikers go. So make sure we, you know, we're, we're, we're entering his presence rightly. Lord, I just, I need you to, I need you to see that uh, I lack what is needed to fulfill what you call me to do. I lack what is needed to be the father that I need to be, to be the mother, to be the son or the daughter that is called to live up to our family banner. Because you haven't given me your anointing. You haven't given me what I need in order to accomplish what you've asked me to do. Oh, it says, this has come out of my mouth. More than it should be. In an effort to honor God, I am then slapping him right in the face by shifting the blame directly to him and the lack that I perceive that I have. Abram stating that, that he lacked a son, one that would hold the possession of his estate. But the way that God began to speak to him, the very first thing that he said when he appeared to Abram in a vision was, do not be afraid. Uh, God knows our hearts way better than we do. He knows the propensity that we have to give in to fear that we'll see a giant problem, an impossibility, a lack that we don't have in order to fulfill the promise that he made. And Abram goes on to declare that there's only a steward of my house who is able to be heir. Look, Lord, I, I got this all figured out. I, I understand. You haven't given me a child, so I, I, I know the solution the way that it, it should be done. That the fear of lacking what is needed to fulfill God's call and his promises on your life will always lead you to blame shifting. It may start with just a few members of your household, right? It may then pervade into some of the members of the church body, maybe even the leadership, perhaps, that you lack because of something they haven't done. But ultimately, it's all directed right to the throne of God. He blames God for his lack of no children. And what was lacking in Abram was the ability to correctly see his momentary lack of an heir as just a molehill. Fear was blinding his vision. It was distorting his vision. Seeing a molehill as a giant problem, a mountain of impossibility in front of him. Well, his mountain of impossibility, his giant problem, 
could be driven out by faith and enable him to gain a son to receive that divine inheritance that was promised him. All he needed was some trust-grounded obedience to correct his vision of that giant problem. And what he was crying out for was an heir. An, an heir to his estate. An inheritance to be gained. We've all heard the stories, and maybe some of us are currently living, the way that inheritances go. And I'm talking about you have that rich uncle, that rich aunt, that's got the nice house, the nice cars, several fat bank accounts, wildly successful, and everyone in the family is secretly in their own hearts trying to determine where all this will go when they die. So, you know, I think whenever they pass, I would like this really nice dining room table. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a Sharpie marker and some tape. And I'll write my name on that tape. I'm going to put it on the underside of the table so that when they pass, everybody knows that the table belongs to me. That's actually happened in one of our family circles. Not fictitious at all. But on the other side of the fence, that rich uncle or rich aunt, they're consumed with the same level of fear. A fear of lack of how those possessions will be handled once they're gone. They begin to put stipulations like uh, this much will go to, uh, this allotted amount will go to this family, but I see how they manage their finances pretty poorly, so I'm going to put a limitation of they can't use it until the parents are 60, the children can't cash in until they're 30. I just want to be able to control the outcome of this inheritance that I've been storing up for myself and supposedly my family all my life. And the whole idea in inheritance, in gaining an inheritance, is that you sit back and you just passively receive a gift that you didn't have to actually work for. That's bestowed you upon you all at once. Kind of like the proverb, inheritance gained all at once in the end is not a blessing. Well, in light of that desire, really fear, that's wanting to control the outcome of the inheritance. Let's see how the Lord began to help Abram overcome that fear. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son. Say the word son. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. You know what I see here? I see a loving father. A loving father grabbing the hand of his son, leading him outside and directing his perspective, his eyes to a heavenly example of his inheritance. When we're beginning to drown in fear of what is going to happen because of our momentary lack, how many times has the Lord grabbed you by the hand and just remind you of who he is? Come on, when Abram looked up at those stars, he knew immediately that the Lord God of heaven and earth is the one who made them and set them in their place. And then on top of that, he can count them, and then he's challenging Abram if he can count them.
that there's more ability for God to fulfill his promises than we are able to enumerate. He's trying to cultivate a faith that conquers a giant problem of fear. But notice what what the Lord did. He restated what his promises already were. The promises didn't change. He didn't alter him in order to cater to the fear that Abram was being consumed by. He didn't change the circumstances by which they would be fulfilled. Nothing was changed. He just reminded his son of his own ability and character to fulfill what he had already promised. As we look at verse 6, let's see what actually did change, though. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited to him his righteousness. The very thing that was changed was Abram's heart. Turning in repentance by driving out fear and self-sufficiency so he could inherit what God was originally promised. Our ears need to be open to the beck and call of our Father that is gently trying to just remind us of who He is day in and day out so that our giant problem of fear can be conquered and we're therefore empowered by His Word being reminded to us that we will receive what has been promised. Verse 7, He also said to him, I am the Lord. He's restating who He is. I am the owner, I am the ruler, I am the controller of heavens and earth. There's none beside me. Next he goes on, who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans. So he's next stating what he has already done in Abram's life. He goes on to give you this land. He's he's stating what he wants, uh, what, what he is doing. So he stated who he is, he has stated what he has done, and now he has stated what he is currently doing. Reflect on the times that the Lord has encouraged you like a loving father, and he goes through this exact same process. Whether it be here at the altar, or as you're driving in your car, overwhelmed with fear, tears coming down your eyes, or you may be the one that is punching your steering wheel because you're so frustrated that things aren't working out as they should be. And the still calm voice of your heavenly father begins to remind you who he is what he has done for you so far the miraculous things that he's done for you so far and then what he is currently doing but there's one more step that's in this verse and to take possession of it so he stated who he was he stated what he has done he stated what he's currently doing and now he is putting the emphasis on what he wants Abraham to do. Well, this particular phrasing, take possession of, it's a very, very common Hebrew word, and it's often used for the word inherit, but also means a variety of other things. Let's pull up the slide. Yerosh. Strong's number 3423, Hebrew. A verb meaning to take possession, to inherit. But it also means to dispossess and to drive out. 
Not to just be a passive recipient of a gift that you never work for, but a bestowing of a responsibility to continue the Father's business. You must drive out. So if we revisit verse 7 with this right, this context, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to drive out its inhabitants, to take possession of it, to dispossess their inhabitants, and to inherit it. All wrapped up in the same word. The inheritance we gain as sons of God is not one that is just obtained through a passive means of gifting is through an actionable means of obedience and driving out the giants that inhabit it. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 65 verse 9. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. It sounds kind of similar to what the Lord was speaking to Abram. And an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall... What's that next word, saints? Inherit it. My chosen people will inherit them, says the NIV 2011. That word inherit is Yerash. It's to drive out. It's to dispossess. You want to be part of his chosen people, his chosen ones? Joining in with the nation of Israel to obtain what God has promised? You have to have the attitude. You have to have the vigor to drive out what inhabits that promised land. And it finishes by saying, and my servants will dwell there. You notice the order. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it. This is Nazbi that I'm reading out of. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it. Comes before actually dwelling in that land. Before you can rest on your laurels and applaud your success, you have to exert the lifetime effort of driving out the inhabitants of that land. Turn with me to Psalm 37, 34 and say drive out whenever you get there. I'll read this to you in NIV 1984. It says, wait for the Lord. Everybody say, wait. Oh, what is it like to tell a five-year-old to sit down and wait? They're perfectly still. They begin to fold their hands and pray. <laughs> they, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. That, that's 34. Well, maybe not even that. I'm not sure. But this idea of wait is to hope. But it's to hope while gathering expectation. It is kava. That while you're awaiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled, you're gathering expectation as if you were binding a rope together. Putting it under tension, but with the purpose of it being used. As you wait, as you hope, gathering expectation in the midst of tension. And keep his way is the next part. That word keep is shamar. We studied that quite thoroughly this year. To guard his way. That we are commanded to wait, to hope in eager expectation. Gathering that expectation while also guarding the commands of the living God. 
We cannot ab- abandon one for the other. And when we are waiting for the Lord and shamaring His way, we are then promised, and He will exalt you. He will raise you up. He will lift you up. He will give you exactly what you need to reach the heights. He will exalt you to inherit. That word inherit is Yerush, 34.23. He will exalt you to drive out. He will exalt you to dispossess that giant problem in the land. And when the wicked cut off, you will see it. That is a promise that God has made, and it has never, ever, ever changed. That as we wait on Him, as we keep His way, He will exalt us, and we will have what is needed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And our eyes will see it. As we pick up back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 8, we'll see Abram walking through this same process. Say, drive out when you're there. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? In other words, how can I know that I will gain the ability to drive out the inhabitants of it? Isn't this what happens to our own hearts? The Lord has called us to something, has promised us, promised us something. And our hearts repent, we begin to walk in the direction of trust, ground, and obedience, but still we're wrestling with that giant problem of fear that we have, and we're open and honest with the Lord. We say, Lord, I, I, I see what you're doing. I see, I see who you are, I see what you've done, I see what you're doing, and I, I see what you're asking me to do, to your rush, to drive out. How can I be sure that my efforts are going to result in this? How can I be sure that I'll have the strength and the power to actually overcome what is needed in order to gain the inheritance that you promised me? We're just like Abram. And let's see how the Lord encouraged him through his vulnerability. Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Each three years old, along with a dove and young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. In order to teach Abram how he will gain possession of what he's been promised, to answer Abram's question, the Lord first required for him to make right sacrifice. If you, no, I'm going to say not if. Because you are struggling with the fear and insecurity of how God is going to accomplish His will in your life, even today, next month, years from now, the first step that He's going to do in order to teach you is bring to me right sacrifice. Wasn't that one of our daily disciplines that we covered last week? And when we're obedient, demonstrating Faith by trust, grounded obedience, and bringing him the right sacrifice. I have no idea why the Lord's asked me to give this. I don't need to know preemptively the why behind the what of obedience. He didn't explain it to Abram, so I don't expect him to explain it to me. You just bring me what I asked for, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to answer your question. 
those pieces, I mean those sacrifices are then cut into two and laid opposite each other. Bringing that right sacrifice then led to the complete total of sacrifice by putting it totally to death. That there was no recovery. It's not like he brought them as a, uh, or brought it with the intention of bringing home a whole animal. He offered right sacrifice and had the right obedience by letting it be a total sacrifice before the Lord. But here's where it leads to. Leads to. Verse 11. Then the birds of prey. Those nasty vultures. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Now, remind me again. The carcasses were his right sacrifice. So you're telling me that whenever the Lord is going to show me how I will drive out a giant problem in my life, and the first step is right sacrifice with no explanation, it's cut in half, put to death, laid to the side, and all of a sudden, birds of prey will come and try to rob me of my right sacrifice? That's an injustice. But the very next line shows Abraham putting into practice what the Lord said for him to do in order to teach him how he would yarash. But Abram drove them away. So by first stepping out in trust, granted obedience to offer right sacrifices, putting it to death, having birds of prey coming to steal and rob your right sacrifice, it then was an imperative that he acted in driving away that which came to steal that right sacrifice. It took forcible effort of obedience in order for him to obtain the promises that God was making to him. The birds of prey. I mentioned vultures earlier. Here, definitely a real live bird. But I want to put it more on point with our own hearts. I'm not just talking about some outside influence calling a a boss at work a bird of prey or any other member of your household. I'm talking about, first and foremost, the very thing that God first addressed in Abram. Fear. That whenever you begin to make right sacrifices, demonstrating trust-granted obedience, and your fear begins to descend upon that right sacrifice in order to steal it, you got to drive it away. you got to drive it out. It has no place in the proximity of the sacrifice and obedience that you have before God. You must drive it out. It starts with fear, but it also can be something of the feathers of pride. I sacrificed this before the Lord, but I think that my sacrifice is a little bit better than Justin Linton's over there. I think God will show more favor on my right sacrifice. That's a bird of prey, and you got to drive it out. It's coming to steal your right sacrifice before God. There's self-sufficiency. Oh, this one is actually on my Nabal card. One that I can look at on a daily basis and say, this bird of prey has to be driven out from my right sacrifice. That just because I don't want to appear to be weak and in need of my brother's help, 
choose for myself what a right sacrifice will look like. Choose for myself my daily task and what I want to accomplish because I think I know a little bit better how to sacrifice than God does. It can even look like a sense of injustice. I sacrificed the variety of ways that we have in our way of life here at LCM. I apologized to that brother. I even read him his Abigail traits. I loved him. I hugged him and prayed for him. And then who is he to come to me the next day and say he has a problem with me? It's a sense of injustice. That's a bird of prey that you have to drive out because it's robbing you of your right sacrifice. Those birds of prey are a giant of a problem. Let's pick up in verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants... I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And listen carefully. These are a lot of ites, but they're important. That's why I put them in the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. They were a giant problem. That the inheritance that was being promised to Abraham was occupied by a giant problem in all these ites. That this wasn't going to be a passive inheritance on Abraham's part, but it had to include an active obedience of driving these giant problems out. And the promise was to your descendants, to your sons, that his sons would have to drive out these giants in order to inherit the promise that was made to Abram. Come on, the promises that God has given you, they're not just for you. They're not just for me. They're for those who will be our descendants. And let me give you a word of encouragement. The giant problems that you drive out today are conquering and giving victory for your descendants of tomorrow. I am aiming to crush every giant problem inside of me so that it doesn't carry forward and the descendants after me can gain victory over more land in order to inherit it. They will have a better sense of what driving out looks like. They will come from a long line of victorious men of God, women of God, that know how to subdue a giant problem. Exodus 34, 11, I'm going to read this to you. Obey what I command to command you today. I will drive out before you. Listen. The Amorites, check. Canaanites, check. Hittites, check. Parasites, check. Hivites, check. Jebusites, check. You mean the very giant problems that were stated to Abram that his descendants would have to conquer? Now we're standing in Moses' day. And they're still around, and now it's the fulfillment of what was spoken to Abram. On the precipice of the promises of God being fulfilled, and God says, I will drive them out. 
Which, as we know, when we read through the history, the Israelites, the men of men from every single tribe participated in that driving out, in that Urash. They didn't passively sit back and watch God wipe out every ite that was in the land. But as they drove out, the Lord with them drove out. They were with the Lord, and so therefore He was with them. And in the end, who gets the credit? God does. He was the one who initiated this inheritance. He was the one who gave the declaration of how it was going to be done. He was the one who supplied the power, the knowledge, the wisdom to overcome and be victorious over every single one of these enemies. But he chose to do it through his people. Turn with me to Joshua 17, verse 11. Say, drive out whenever you get there. In that progression of a promise made to Abram, a restating to Moses, now we see the boots on the ground carrying it out. Within Issachar and Asher, Manasseh also had Bet-Shen, Ibliam, and the people of Dor, Endor, Ta'anach, and Megiddo. Together with their surrounding settlements, the third in the list is Nafok. Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region that's a giant problem you know the Lord was helping conquer Abram's fear adding clarity to how he would gain his inheritance by driving out Here it is, we see the process is on its way to being fulfilled. But let me ask you, saints, is it complete? No, there were Canaanites that were determined to live in that region. This was a giant problem. In fact, the Canaanites were more determined than the people of God were to drive out. Verse 13, however, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely if I accomplish something let's say at 90% is that complete no no there's no curve or grading scale in the kingdom what's complete 100% you know doing 90% of what God told you to do is not the same as accomplishing 100% of what God told you to do And accomplishing 90% of what God said isn't the same thing as driving out the enemy in order to get the divine inheritance. The enemy, this giant problem, has to be driven out completely in order to fully possess the divine inheritance that was originally spoken to Abram. Verse 14, the people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for our inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. I mean, we've multiplied. We've increased all of our stuff. We have nowhere to put it anymore. And we just, we need some more land, right? I'm, we're lacking. 
something here. It's kind of reminiscent of Abram's conversation with the Lord in Genesis 15. You haven't given me what I need in order to gain my full inheritance. So blame shifting going on. Verse 15. I love Joshua, by the way. He's a boss. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered. And if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves. There in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaites. He's pointing them back to the original promise that God made to Abram. Go finish it. Don't come to me and complain why you don't have enough. You haven't done enough. Go drive them out. He's redirecting their fear towards faith is what he's doing. He's demanding the same thing from them that God demanded from Abram, from Moses, and from him personally. He was a man who's been there and done that. And that's why he has the authority to be able to look at these guys and say, yeah, you can do it. He's telling them, go drive them out completely. Verse 16. The people of Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots. So wait a minute. I thought you just told me that you were very numerous and you're really blessed by the Lord with lots of stuff. So we're kind of getting a shifting of excuses here. They have iron chariots, both those in Bet Shan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. Now, we know that names in the Bible aren't there for just filler. They actually mean something. Bet Shan means house of comfort, house of ease. So the hill country is not enough for us and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chairs, both those in the house of comfort. So you wait a minute. But there's a house of comfort that's inhabited by giants. And I have to drive them out in order to get to the house of comfort? Hmm. And its settlement in those in the valley of Jezreel, valley of Jezreel means the valley of sowing and planting. So we have the house of comfort, Beth Shen, in the valley of sowing and planting, Jezreel. That giants inhabit them both in order to be able to get to that place of comfort, in order to get to that place of sowing and planting, I have to displace, I have to drive out the giants first. Yeah. Yes, you do. You got to drive them out. They were asking for an alternative means to get to ease and fruitfulness. Saying, I want to achieve comfort without having to drive out the giants. I want to be fruitful for the Lord without the work of having to drive out these giant problems. The giants are holding our inheritance hostage. So I just need some other land in a different direction. I need a call other than the one that you already gave me, Lord. I want so-and-so's anointing. I want so-and-so's gifting. I want the shalom in so-and-so's household because the one on my own doorstep is just too difficult to drive out. Let me bring it down home. They're saying that they have iron chariots and we do not. That's not a giant problem for God. But the giant problem is this. The giants 
or the elements of our own sinful nature. They're not the actual outside problems. It's not the broken down vehicle. It's not the sickness. It's not the tension with a boss and the way he treats you. It's not the imprecise wording of your spouse that pushes your button and sets you off. The giants are your own sinful nature. And you got to drive them out. I want to bear fruit for God. But I don't want to have to fight day and night against my own sinful nature in order to accomplish it. I was born again at 16 years old, in love with Jesus, radically transformed, a new creation, experienced a wonderful bliss of God's presence and His power that conquered so many giants inside of me. But He was a good Father and graceful enough to leave some still behind so that I would learn how to fight. Let me be candid for a minute particularly for you single men. We all know the kind of thoughts that you wrestle with day in and day out. 16, moving into 18 and 20. And my thoughts would constantly war with my spirit every five to ten seconds of what every single man that is born again wrestles with every five to 10 seconds to the point where I'm sitting on the gym floor during lunch at my high school with my hands in my head, crying out to God, make this stop. I'm tired of warring with these thoughts. I'm putting I'm putting nothing evil before my eyes. I am running wholeheartedly after you. What do you want me to do? I'm a victim of this Lord. I can't overcome it. You know what he told me? He said, drive them out. Do it again and again and again and again because if I let you become lax and apathetic in dealing with this area of your sinful nature, that's how you will deal with the remaining parts of your sinful nature. I am teaching you how to exercise and fight and defeat and drive out the giants that are inside of you. And by doing so, I'm training you so that you can train others. It was two nights later, I had a dream. And in that dream, I was in the pits of hell. And in the pits of hell, there was this box, like a Pandora's box. And inside of it was every evil, malicious, and wicked thought that ever run through my mind. And I was standing in front of it. And the box opened, and they began to chase me. And I was running, overwhelmed with fright and fear. And then Jesus stood in front of me, and he, he, he looked at me. And I didn't expect this look on his face, but I was like, what are you doing? He said, stop. So I stopped. He said, what are you wearing? White linen? He said, use it. I don't think I get what you mean. He said, take it off and beat those things right back to the pits of hell where they belong. 
So I took that righteous garment and I began to pop it like a whip and drive them back into the depths of hell where they belonged. I woke up from that dream empowered with the understanding that it's my responsibility to drive these giants back where they belong and I can do it again and again and again and again. I'm not a victim to my sinful nature. I am a victor over my sinful nature. But you must drive them out. Another facet is an attitude that says, I want to get to a point where my days are free from warfare. Achieve a level of comfort. After all, I deserve it. So this was at the beginning of my walk. What about 10 years? What about 15 years of doing this? Being successful. And then there's another giant of your sinful nature that begins to rise. What a young single man that is born again struggles with is not the same that a 40-year-old man struggles with. You begin to wrestle with insecurity, pride, maybe even a touch of manipulation because your youthful strength is no longer there. You begin to demand more respect than God does. I deserved it. I've defeated my giants. No, you defeated a giant. There's more than one. You got some more to go drive out. You could even say, Lord, I was slaying the giants of my sinful nature for a whole week. Isn't that great? Aren't you proud of me, Lord? I did a good job for a whole week. I deserve a life of ease. No, it's a lifetime, a lifetime of killing giant after giant after giant. Can I just enjoy the comforts without having to go to war? I just want the benefits without paying the price. What do you mean I have to deal with the giant of my sinful nature all the time? Our sinful nature is the giant inside of me. It's the giant inside of you. And they must be driven out. There's no other option. Those giants that are determined to live in the land of my own heart must be driven out in order for me to gain the inheritance of a divine promise and a divine inheritance. Let's look at verse 17. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. Joshua is speaking their Abigail traits. He's encouraging them with their divine nature and what God has already done through them. He is stating what they are. And the word for you, church, is just the same. You are numerous and very powerful. Do not let fear displace the very character and perspective that your father has over you. You are very powerful. That's why the devil works so hard to get you to give in to the giants of your own sinful nature. 
Because he wants you to disqualify yourself. God's not disqualifying you. Your fear is giving in to your giants. Fear of giving in to your giants. He wants them to find the courage to drive out what their fear says that they cannot. You know what it's like. You're overcome by despair. You're overwhelmed by the nature of the task and the way of life that the Lord has given you, but more importantly, calling you to strive for and gain more possession of. And fear begins to whisper into your ear and say that you cannot. Then there comes a three by five index card that's lying within a leather pouch or a plastic uh, chewing gum container. Those work really well for those, by the way. And you take it out of your pocket, and you like, I don't know what my stones say right now. I can't even remember my own name at the moment. But I know that if I just take out this reminder, this reminder of who God is inside of me, who God is inside of my spouse, who God is inside of my family, that word that was given to me two years ago on a New Year's Eve or a birthday that I had no idea how it would apply to my life, right now it has given me the courage to drive out what my fear is saying that I cannot. It's a life-saving word. How many times has that happened to you, saints? That either a message from LCM back in the day, I'm talking about 2004, when Eric and I's voice were at least two octaves higher than they are now. And we're preaching fire, we're preaching Holy Ghost, we're going after it. And you had no idea about that by listening to that message, it would be speaking directly to you and that circumstance at the time. That's really the voice of Yehoshua, the voice of Jesus speaking to you saying, take courage. You can drive out what your fear is saying that you cannot. You must drive out those giants. He goes on to say, you will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it. Say clear it. And its farthest limits will be yours. Look at the responsibility he puts on their shoulders. Not only does he encourage them with who they are, that they're numerous and that they're very powerful, but he puts upon them the responsibility to go clear it and clear it to its farthest limits. That means 100%. Not 90, not 95, not even 99, but to its farthest limits. 100% clear it. Let me tie this in. This is cutting down every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Every high and lofty thing that hates God within you, cut it down. And to its farthest limits of your hearts, to the farthest limits of your minds, use the sword, the word of God, and cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. You go clear it to its farthest limits. That means not one stray thought, not one bad attitude is allowed to live in the land of your heart. That's the allotment that God has given you. Go clear it. Clear it to its furthest extremes. And as soon as it exalts itself, 
Cut it down with the Word. That's why this, these stones, and more importantly, that's why the living and active Word of God is so useful. If the perfect Son of God, when tempted in the desert, used the very Word of God to cut down temptation, how much more do we need that same Word cutting down our thoughts and our bad attitudes? He goes on to say, Though the Canaanites... Have I in chariots. This is a word for you, you ladies. This is what I mean. Joshua was a great leader. And I'm sure a great husband. He acknowledged what was real. You know, I just, I feel overwhelmed and all these things are happening. And this, this happened this week and then the week after. And oh, I'm so, so overwhelmed by everything. That's not how my wife sounds. We're just, you know, imitating it. Yes, sweetheart. All those things are real. They have iron chariots. But Joshua continues like any other good husband should. And though they are strong. Another acknowledgement. There it is. Yep, they have iron chariots. Yep, they're strong. But you can drive them out. You can. He sees more potential inside of God's people than they see in and of themselves. He's driving fear and faithlessness out of them so that they can become faithful to drive out and inherit the divine inheritance that God is giving them. You know what the Lord does for me? He drives out my fear. He helps me drive out the giants of my sinful nature. I am then strengthened. You know what I do? I do the exact same thing for my wife. You know what that then empowers my wife to do? To do the same thing for our children. Us as a family, you know what that's what enables us to do? To do it for you. The more that we step up to the plate of driving out the giant problems of our own sinful nature, the more powerful we become to not only gain the inheritance for us, but to help you gain the inheritance that God has promised for you. So as pastors, when we're confronting you, you know what we're doing? We're driving out the fears. We're driving out the sinful nature that is so prevalent and blinding your eyes from seeing what God really wants to give you as an inheritance, but calling you up to the standard to clear it to its farthest limits. The standpoint or the viewpoint is that Joshua has and that we have. Is it church? You're stronger. You're stronger than your sinful nature. Because in this case, these giants were fighting with weapons of this world. Iron chariots. They were fighting with their own strength. Oh, but the, the weapons that we have are far superior. I mean, we got Holy Ghost night vision. We can see into the dark every movement that the enemy has. We have scripture guided missiles in the name of Jesus. They cruise right on through the enemy territory and strike at the heart of our enemies. I could keep going, but I can't think of all the other names of the weapons that are far superior. What I do know is turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Yeah. 
Saints, this word, this word is not something that I downloaded as a PDF and thought it was a great idea to share with you. This word is birthed from my very own struggle. It's birthed from the very thing the Lord is commanding for me to do for myself, for my family, and for this church. Because I want to win. Holiness or die trying. DCD. Disciples creating disciples. 2 Corinthians 10.3, speaking about this far superior weaponry. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does, such as with iron chariots. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have what kind of power? They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Let me help you with something. I read this verse for years as a young man that was full of zeal and pride and arrogance. But I had a smile on my face and was gently rebellious. And I read this scripture and I put it only in one context. And that is when I have the next doctrinal debate. That he's given me divine power to demolish their arguments. To demolish their stronghold of Calvinism. I got in those moments and was expecting the Holy Ghost to bring back to remembrance everything that the Lord has told me, just like John 14, 26. And what I realized is that the valve controlling the flow of anointing from heaven was shut closed. And I began to call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, help me, help me, remind me of this scripture. I want to win this debate. I was missing the whole point of what the scripture is speaking of. He's given me divine power to demolish the strongholds, the giant problems of my own sinful nature. That's where my focus needed to be. That's the argument that we need to win every single time. Giants of your sinful nature that are determined to live in the land of your heart must be driven out in order to gain the divine inheritance that God has promised you. He goes on in verse 5. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. As we referenced earlier, clear, clear the, whole, the hill country to its furthest limits. Demolish the arguments and every pretension. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. To be sure that we don't overlook this with a simplification of the English language. Demolish arguments. These are verbal altercations. That's one facet of it. Right? Between husbands and wives. Between siblings and the family. Between members in the body of Christ. Even between maybe you and some co-workers. Or just a stranger at a grocery store. Pushing that right button and all of a sudden, I just got to say something. I got to say it. I'm not a man if I don't say something. Well, if you do, 
you're being conquered by a giant problem within you. It can even be the mild frustrations that we have with our family members, right? Mild irritations that we have between people sitting in this very room. You know, I I love so-and-so, but, you know, sometimes they just kind of rub me the wrong way. And that comes out verbally, too. But let me me go to more of the depths, uh, the recesses of your own heart, of our own hearts. What about the arguments that are just the ones that are inside your heart and mind but never actually come out your mouth? You smile. Praise God. Love you, brother. Can I pray for you? On the inside, you are just having it out with that person. I'm telling you, you just, you, it boils inside of you to the point when you get to the bathroom, you don't even go and actually do what you need to do in the bathroom. You stop in the mirror and you just start having out that argument and pretending winning it. They're kind of looking at me like you've never done that before. Or just maybe in the mirror of your own mind. And then she said this, and then I said this, and I came back with this scripture, and then she tried to punch me, and I move out the way, and I said, get behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus. But you begin to, to dive off into this fantasy land of an argument that never happened. It's all predicated by your assumption of their giant inflicting damage upon you, but it's actually your own giant destroying you. Pretension. Pre-tension. Combination word here. English class. Here we go. Pretension. A declaration of who is right. It's a declaration of who is right. So I know that when I go to talk to David, that I'm going to have all these things listed of how I'm right in this matter. And no matter what he says, he's going to be wrong. Before we ever had the conversation. So with these two things in mind, let's go back and read this verse 5. With that divine power, right? We demolish arguments and every pretension inside of us. That power is there to destroy what's inside of us. These are like the birds of prey that circle in your own thoughts trying to steal your right sacrifice. That we demolish and dispossess our giants such as fear. We said that a lot. Apathy. Pride. Envy. Wanting what someone else has though God hasn't given it to us. Selfish ambition, wanting to maintain an idolatrous view of myself for everyone else. And even despair. This goes on. Mark chapter 10, let's turn there. Say drive out when you get there. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher. Oh, sovereign Lord. He asked, and what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he begins with a, 
a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you respond if someone said these things to you? I'm eager. Yo, oh, I'm going to tell you everything. Would his flattery and desire to act sway the counsel that you would give him? Because let's see how Jesus did it. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You see, mere flattery will never work on the Son of God. And neither will it work on the sons of God. He goes on, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Hmm, I've been faithful. I'm numerous and abundantly blessed. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He said, one thing you lack. One giant problem still needs to be conquered. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus is pointing out the giant problem that this rich young ruler has within his own heart. That by not driving out the giants in his own heart would lead to his very possession being stolen by the giants that he left remaining. Jesus required for him to clear the land and drive out the giants, meaning that to go sell and give to the poor. See, he was a rich young ruler. He had no problem selling stuff. He was highly successful in that. But it was the next step. Give it to those that you think don't deserve it. Give it to those that you are striving so hard not to be. Defeat that giant. It's an actionable step of obedience. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. We'll start in verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. 100%. In order to make your hope, to make that waiting time sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Saints, we must continue to drive out the giants of our sinful nature day in and day out to the point where it's diligence to the end. Hope comes from driving out the giants. You know what? I slayed one yesterday and I'm going to slay another today and the next day and the next day. That we can't be looking to inherit the comfort of Bet Shen, the life of ease, without driving out the giants that live there. Because a house of comfort that's still inhabited by giants is filled with calamity and chaos. We can't be looking to inherit the effortless planting in the valley of Jezreel without completely driving out the giants that live there. Because fruit from the soil of a heart that is inhabited by giants only bears bad fruit. We must be willing to completely drive out the giants of our own sinful nature. We're called to imitate those who have driven out the giants in their own sinful nature. And this requires faith, trust, grounded obedience, and patience, which is hupomone, having a character that will not quit. We must drive out the giant problem in our own sinful nature 
so that we can inherit what God has promised. Let me read to you. Revelation 21 verse 7 says, He who overcomes, he who drives out to the farthest limit, will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. When we completely drive out the giants of our sinful nature, it is a display that we are a son of our father. Because what are we really speaking about? We're speaking about being an heir of Abram. Being a son, an heir that is worthy of our father's inheritance. When you are driving out your sinful nature, you are demonstrating your father's nature and thereby declared a son of God and a rightful heir to his possessions. Sons are born to inherit their father's estate. Sons are born to drive out their father's enemies. Sons inherit the promises of their father. But I ask, is your daily life demonstrating the spirit of sonship? One that seeks to completely drive out the giants of your sinful nature. In that slide that we had for Yerash, there was a phrase that was also highlighted. And it said, possession of the land was directly connected to a person's relationship with the Lord. What are you doing to possess the land that will rightly reflect passionate, wholehearted commitment commitment to your king. Stand with me tonight. What giant problem of your sinful nature do you need to drive out tonight? Like Abram, let's turn our hearts towards his heavenly throne. Let's look to our heavenly father and ask him, what is it that we need to drive out if we can't see it clearly? What is that giant of our sinful nature that must die? Die inside of us so that we can inherit the promises as his sons. Let the Lord show you. He wants to. More than just show you, he wants to equip you and enable you to drive out the giant problem so that you can be worthy of inheriting sonship, inheriting every bit of his promises, not lacking any good thing. If you're not sure what exactly that giant may be, I want to help you. I bet you fear is a good place to start. So mighty King, we submit our hearts to you right now. We ask that Lord, your word and your spirit in agreement would sift through our hearts and our minds. Lord, it would locate and find those giant of a problem inside of us and that sinful nature. That with your spirit and word, they would be driven out they would be put to death and thereby were qualified qualified to inherit your estate qualified to inherit 
that treasured possession of your kingdom. We say, Spirit, come. Come and fill this room now. Fill us with a spirit of repentance and lead us to being filled with your power. In Jesus' name.